Thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor, for that very kind introduction. And also my thanks to the Equality and Diversity Unit for all their support and organisation. I won't speak about historical research into sexuality, but only about how we can mobilise that for maximum impact and the institutional, cultural and political issues that can be at stake. I'll use the gradual development of a recent book as a case study to suggest some of the possible uses of LGBTQ history and some of the things that I think I learnt from personal experience. So I'm afraid it's all rather anecdotal, but I hope you'll see the serious points that underlie all this. I myself am not a historian of sexuality, I'm just a gay Egyptologist who specialises in Middle Kingdom literature from the 18th and 19th centuries BC. This is not even the glamorous world of archaeology, still less <laughs> of Indiana Jones, so ancient Egyptian philology is not often thought about in terms of sex. However, the court poetry of the Middle Kingdom addresses the dark side to perfection and articulates ideologically non-normative themes, and so is suited to what one might call a queer philology, taking queer, in David Halperin's words, as whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, the dominant. But Egyptian poetry can also be queer in some quite obvious ways. Perhaps the earliest known chat-up line in human history is one between two males that is preserved in this corpus, where the god Seth says to the god Horus, what a lovely backside you have. <laughs> Some of the Egyptian treatments of same-sex sexual activity are parts of heteronormative aggression, as in the famous Semna Stela of 1846, where the conquering king St. Waswick III derogatorily calls his Nubian enemies hemiu, or backturners, or faggots, an insult that is also bandied about by farmers in the daily life uh, scenes in Old Kingdom tombs. Seth's poetic chat-up line, however, seems to be motivated by desire, not aggression. And the poetic corpus also includes another later fragmentary tale in which a pharaoh is conducting an affair with his unmarried general. It's perhaps the first detective story in world literature, as the pharaoh is followed by a curious courtier at night. And from what the courtier says, this was a regular established liaison between two adult men and that had to be conducted by night in secret. The affair is apparently denounced, but the ending of the poem is unfortunately lost. Now, 20 years ago, I discussed some of these themes in an article on same-sex desire in Egyptian poetry. And because of this article, I was asked to a conference on gender in Swansea in uh, 2005 and became involved in the related public controversy over the so-called first gay kiss. Um, near Cairo, there is an Old Kingdom tomb from around 2450 BC shared by two courtiers called Niank Num and Knum Hotep who are shown embracing. And this has been interpreted as a socially sanctioned same-sex partnership. Contextual evidence, however, suggests that the two men are almost certainly twins. But nevertheless, the tomb features prominently in many popular LGBT campaigns and in many histories. Rather regrettably, because as I say, they are almost certainly twins, they have become the poster boys of academic queer philology. Interpretation is always contingent. 
It's very tempting to favor readings against the grain that support our concerns and to criticize other interpretations as heteronormative or self-censoring. But I do think they're twins. <laughs> and, uh, and because of this, I've been denounced as an Egyptologist for, quote, not being gay enough. An overly positive account, a single overly positive account, can encourage people to dismiss all LGBT readings of history as special pleading. And I think research on such topics has to be irrefutably accurate, or it risks promoting a backward step. And given the fragile nature of LGBT rights in modern Egypt, such historical interpretation of the ancient past is not a purely academic matter. Now, this research on same-sex desire was done when I was a curator at the British Museum, and under Neil McGregor's directorship, there were several relevant exhibitions, in particular one about the famous Roman Warren Cup from around AD 10. This cup was collected in 1911 um, by Ned Warren, who was an Oxford graduate and East Seat, who is seen here with his friend John Marshall, apparently known as Puppy. As with Niak Knum and Knum Hotep, such images of male intimacy pose more questions than they can answer. Marshall later married, so things were not quite as simple as we might assume. The cup itself was simply acquired by the museum in 1999 and has been on public display ever since. In 2005, it was the center of a temporary exhibition, and three years later, it was also included in the blockbuster Hadrian Empire and Conflict. This celebrated the emperor's relationship with the handsome Antinous, and labels then described him simply as Hadrian's lover. This explicit simplicity is a measure of how things had changed over the past decade in museums and continue to change. LGBT history is becoming more visible in heritage institutions, though I suspect often in response to pressure from the community rather than from movements within. Many museums now have displays focused on LGBT and gender issues, including the National Art Museum in Copenhagen, which has a permanent gallery with a very fine, small guide, and the German Historical Museum in Berlin, with its recent temporary exhibition on modern German homosexualities. As I've indicated, I'm only an accidental academic activist, and this was entirely due to working at the museum. In 2007, a museum freelancer, Kate Smith, wanted to write an LGBT web trail around the British Museum for the London-based Culture24 website. Because of my research on poetry, I was asked to help her to liaise with colleagues as she wrote the trail, and I thought it was absolutely great. So a few years later, when the UK LGBT History Month wanted to hold its pre-launch event at the museum, we revised the trail and we included it on the museum's own website, where web trails explore cross-cultural subjects such as rulers, animals, and time. This version of the trail was written by the in-house web team, myself and Kate, and a colleague, Max Karoki, advised on the anthropological aspects. The trail now included about 20 different objects to suggest, for a general audience, how cultures construct love sexuality and gender in diverse ways. It stressed that although desire leaves very few archaeological traces, an LGBT presence in history exists and is in part recoverable, although it is not always immediately obvious or explicit. 
The relevance of this quilt from Pakistan is purely the anecdote told to the scholar who collected it, that it was made by a transvestite hijra. Due to the partial and biased nature of the historical record, men predominated in the trail. This was a persistent problem and has remained a problem with all the subsequent developments of the project. Women's desire is generally less visible in ancient objects, like women themselves, despite some famous figures such as Sappho and some glimpses on domestic items such as this Roman lamp from Turkey, which is now known in the museum as the lesbian lamp. It's politically important, I think, to remind people that same-sex desire is not a recent phenomenon, as is so often claimed, and that it is also a worldwide phenomenon. And so we included an 18th century Maori treasure box with a highly stylized scene of oral sex, and this 19th century North American winter count with a transvestite figure in the center. The range of images as a whole demonstrated visually that there have been many different ways of being LGBT, a central issue, I think, for any consideration of our heritage. The trail sat as a permanent feature in a fairly rich website and was one of the most visited after those about money and fluffy animals, which is very English. Um, but it was still quite easy to overlook. So in 2011, step by step, Untold London produced a paper version written by Kate that could be distributed to more specific audiences. Informal trialing had revealed that the phrase LGBT was not transparent enough for most visitors to the museum's website. But with the new paper trail's intended audience, we moved from the neutral term same-sex desire to LGBT. The trail was um, publicized in QX, Listing Magazine, and a thousand were given away at that year's London Pride. It was becoming clear that the trail fulfilled, filled a gap and that many people felt that these histories were very relevant to their own lives. The trail's demonstrable success led me to propose a book to the admirable British Museum Press, who commissioned a little gay history as a sort of LGBT history of the world in 40 objects from the museum. The aim was to be very short, accessible, but authoritative, an introduction to key issues about history and identity in a well-illustrated and engaging format for as wide a readership as possible. Specialist LGBT research projects are, of course, essential, but so is the public awareness of such things, just as an awareness of gender should inform all our academic activities and not be confined to discrete modules. In this sense, a little gift book in an established format and series can be more effective than any mono academic monograph. Everybody loves cats, so why shouldn't everybody love same-sex desire? As Kate <laughs> remarked, the book should be something very short and well illustrated that a young person who was coming out could read and could also give to their grandmother. And for my part, I discovered that when you have suddenly a contract to write a history of the world in six months, brevity is a very convenient virtue. <laughs> All too often, our histories have concerned, have concentrated on silence, oppression, and persecution. But given our aims to speak to the young, I wanted to follow the more positive lead given by E.M. Forster when he remarked in August 1917 of his Egyptian lover, the Alexandrian tram conductor Mohammed El Adl, when I am with him smoking or talking quietly ahead, or whatever it may be, I see beyond my own happiness and intimacy 
occasional glimpses of the happiness of thousands of others whose names I shall never hear, and I know that there is a great unrecorded history. Forster provided an inspirational model. His prose is non-normative, anti-normative, profoundly but gently ironic. There is no radical posturing, but his queerness has a high seriousness beneath the joking which I find very appealing and which transcends his dated and limited worldview. This quote provided the title for a general introduction in which methodological points could be lightly and accessibly made, such as about the difficulty of finding the right word for the title and why we ended up with gay instead of LGBT or queer, and about issues of identity, essentialism and constructionism. The introduction also let us incorporate immediately contemporary issues, such as marriage equality, as illustrated with this wedding photograph of a cute Australian couple who had to go to Canada to get married. Once you start looking, LGBTQ history is almost everywhere, and the book covered as many continents as we could fit in, and the structure ran from 9000 BC to the present day. Inevitably, within a single institution, it was hard to provide a balanced and comprehensive view of all the world's cultures. Some, such as Edo period um, Japan, have given same-sex desire prominence in art forms that have been valued and collected. Others have not, such as Africa, where the main evidence for same-sex desire is predominantly textual. Some objects have been valued, some suppressed, some not collected by museums, but their modern life stories are themselves contributions to LGBT history. It ended up as a partial, fragmented history, only occasional glimpses. But such is the nature of our evidence and such is the nature of our lives. The form of the book was chosen precisely to embody this sense of occasional glimpses. On the practical level, um, the 40 objects were first chosen in consultation with specialist curatorial colleagues. I wrote the text, and then each section was checked and signed off by specialists. Although my own research on the interpretation of Egyptian poetry and its modern receptions involves reading against the grain, we ensured that every claim in the book could be supported by fairly direct and incontestable evidence to make the academic integrity of the project as transparent as possible no special pleading. The whole draft was then read over by various external scholars of a range of sexual persuasions, genders and ages. I thought it wiser to celebrate the uncertainties of the historical process rather than offering any black and white claims that might distract from the sheer depth of LGBT history. So we asked if Gilgamesh and Enkidu in the great Mesopotamian epic poem were to use the words of Torch Song Trilogy, friend friends or euphemism friends. <laughs> they are shown here as butch heroes killing the bull of heaven on a fine seal stone, as well as being described on the um, tablet of the poem, which is not quite so visually appealing. Some uncertainties are fascinating. To what extent is this scene of oral masturbation to be read as a sexual, sexualized image, or is it simply iconographic symbolism for the Earth's fecundity? And were the two ancient Egyptian architects, Hor and Suti, who commemorated themselves together, together as brothers on this funerary monument from 1375 BC, another pair of twins, or could they have been lovers? The stela has always been on display. And in 1910, the infamous occultist Alistair Crowley suggested very imaginatively that they were both twins and lovers in an utterly ghastly poem called The Twins. 
death, how lithe, how blithe are these male incestuous vigils. Uh, this is the spasm that kills us. It goes on. Not a hypothesis endorsed by professional Egyptology, fortunately. The evidence as a whole strongly suggests that they were twins and family men. But by addressing other possibilities, we show that heterosexuality is not compulsory in history or in historians. The aim was simply to complicate the question and to open up possibilities rather than proposing black and white answers. Why objects? The sheer materiality of objects gives us the irreplaceable touch of the real that can communicate with people in a way that texts and images alone cannot. The impact of this sheet of Michelangelo's comes not only from the superb drawing of the fall of Phaeton, but from its juxtaposition with the elegantly written note to Tommy, his handsome aristocratic friend Tommaso de Cavalieri, protesting that it is just a sketch. Together they embody an infatuated eagerness to impress a younger man in a way that is, I think, instantly recognisable to anyone who has felt something similar. The sheet is the physical embodiment of his love, an object passing from his hands into Cavalieri's. This is the thing itself, the very act of love, of desire. And it is still just the same, as beautifully passionate as it was in early 1533 when it was first drawn and written. Contemporaneous voices like Michelangelo's can vividly evoke how the original actors perceived and shaped their own lives, and they evoke specific personal experiences rather than generalised historical views. This gives a history texture, and more strategically, emphasises that we are not projecting modern constructs onto early cultures, which is of course a familiar charge against LGBT history. Surveys of the Hadrian exhibition had revealed that many visitors had been completely unaware of the emperor's sexuality. So I think it's still very necessary to remind general audiences of the great and the good, such as the Shakespeare of the sonnets, we had to take the copy from the British Library, um, or the cross-dressing Chevalier Deon. Other artefacts in the book, however, were less well known. And as far as I know, these Michelangelesque ceramic figures from around 1925 were published for the first time. Thereby, the expressionist German potter Augusta Kaiser, and after her death, were kept by her life partner Hedwig Markart. She then left them to her niece, who donated them to the British Museum. Two of them are domestic images of women, made by a woman and treasured by a woman. Their very personal acquisition story reminds how easily such non-normative love stories can be lost in history. And I should say I discovered these simply from joking with a colleague in the canteen that I simply couldn't find enough lesbians in the museum. As she walked off, she turned round and said, I think I've got some in a cupboard for you. <laughs> and, in, and indeed she had. Sometimes one has to think laterally to see a history. The collections contain this 1880 view of the country house of Knoll from a sequence entitled Seats of the Noblemen and Gentlemen of Great Britain and Ireland. Knoll, of course, features in Virginia Woolf's magnificently subversive Orlando. And so we juxtaposed the print with a still of the 1992 film by Sally Potter starring Tilda Swinton to suggest that not all histories have to take such a bland conventional view of heritage as this rather nasty print does. The history behind most normative facades is almost always more complicated and queerer than first appears. 
All you need to complicate the question is a slight change of perspective, a new juxtaposition. One theme that emerged as the book was written was the importance of cultural traditions in shaping and celebrating modern identities, as with this Native American quilt that draws on traditional forms to commemorate not dead warrior heroes, but AIDS victims. Similarly, in the 1960s, David Hockney illustrated Konstantin Kavafi's poetic meditations on the ancient past. Poems written in Kavafi's flat in Alexandria in the 1920s, linking the ancient and modern cities and their desires across the millennia. The sheer time range was important, as was tone. The museum's collection of protest badges brought our story unexpectedly right up to the present day. Um, my favorite one is the lesbian helpline one by the marvelous Kate Charlesworth, where an anxious call is reassured that owning a cat isn't compulsory for lesbians. <laughs> On a similarly modern note, the book includes a 1994 print by the Australian artist David McDermott, one of his rainbow aphorisms, and this witty drag queen, drag queen pack of cards from 1997, which is a modern take on the Japanese tradition of cross-dressing performers. The artist and activist Otsuko Takashi gave these to the museum with the strict condition that the pack must always be stored with, quote, the queens on top. There are very many different ways of being LGBT, and not all of them dead and serious. Gay can remain celebratory, witty, and frivolous, even in the face of death and oppression. Some of the images you've seen are moderately explicit, for the purely academic reason that scenes of sex provide the least ambiguous images of desire. Sex is always good for book sales, but I wanted to prioritize romance and domesticity. And so we included as many same-sex partnerships as we could, such as the artists Charles Shannon and Charles Ricketts, and with passing references to Margaret Yursenar and Grace Frick, Patrick White and Manali Lascaris, Benjamin Britten and Peter Piers. Of course, many possible objects were omitted due to chances of what has survived and what has been collected, but also due to my haste and ignorance. I didn't notice that the museum had Michelangelo's vivid sketch of a lustful sinner being dragged to hell by his balls until it was too late. And this striking piece of Japanese wartime propaganda was acquired after the book was finished. It's a bizarre official strategy to hand that out to troops to encourage them to attack the enemy. It's, it's a nice moustache, though. Um, nothing in the collection, unfortunately, features the cross-dressers Fanny and Stella, the subject of a recent novel by my colleague Barbara Ewing, nor is there anything by the great Tove Janssen, creator of the highly inclusive Moomin family. But our history is always going to be partial and incomplete, like any history, and for many reasons. Given the inevitable limitations of our data, research must be self-aware and self-reflexive. The British Museum had its own role in this history, in particular with the now dismantled Secretum, the so-called secret museum where phallic objects were all gathered together so they would not pollute the minds of women or the lower classes, and presumably so that gentlemen with special permission could view all the erections in the museum in one handy cupboard. <laughs> it's, it's a bit bizarre, but it was in a way the start of scientific investigations into the cultural construction of sexuality. And we wanted to remind people that Lord Wolfenden, who produced the famous report of 1967, was later a director of the British Museum, as seen in this fine portrait by Michael Noakes. 
But most importantly, Greek art in museums has often acted as a touchstone for European gay identity and rights. These queer fictions of the past are modern constructions, but they have been very important cultural forces. One of the great love stories set in the museum is E.M. Forster's posthumously published novel, Morris, which has a key scene in the Greek galleries on an evening when the great building suggested a tomb, miraculously illuminated by the spirits of the dead. As with Kavafi, the ancient past illuminating living love. We approached the legendary Merchant Ivory Productions, who had filmed the novel on location in 1986, and James Ivory very generously offered a range of stills, free, I might add, and his kind support and friendship quickly became the highlight of the whole project for me. I used three of these stills in this book, including the unpublished shot of a deleted scene with the gorgeous James Wilby being filmed in the Egyptian Sculpture Gallery, which of course appealed to me immensely as an Egyptologist. <laughs> the shot neatly exemplifies the role that museums and academic institutions can play as a stage for new generations of living art, connecting the past and the present, legitimizing diversity. Morris is, to my eyes, the greatest film made about LGBT love, partly because it avoided the usual media stereotypes, but also because it has a happy ending. All too often in modern works of art, same-sex desire ends unhappily. It's as if everybody doesn't mind a gay couple as long as one of them is dead, as Christopher Isherwood famously noted in A Single Man. The film's period style also appealed in this context. It reclaims for us the English pastoral, the Hollywood romance, and the whole historical past. Just as Forster in his novels hands the culturally central heritage, call it England, art, Italy, India, whatever, to the outsider, so the film refuses a marginal role for LGBT life and love. And I don't think anyone has ever managed to make Oxbridge academic dress look so incredibly homoerotic. <laughs> So I'm rather glad that Subfusk has been kept. It does make finals look like one great Forsterian romance to me. <laughs> Above all, Morris is the sort of masterpiece that reminded its viewers that culture and art are not always unrelentingly heterosexual. How wearisome, how actively oppressive it can be to be continually confronted with a world of cultural production that ignores us and excludes us from the usual human drama. What a relief it was to find an exception. Now, there are plenty of gay rom-coms, historical novels and adverts, but in the 1980s, when I was a student, things were different. This was the age of Thatcher's Clause 28 and the doom-laden AIDS adverts. Nevertheless, Merchant Ivory moved from the wildly successful Room with a View and chose to make Morris and they filmed it in exactly the same style, as if slyly asking why anyone should treat a same-sense romance as in any way different. And this self-deprecating but profoundly queer heroism makes it my favorite, I think, of all the works included in the book. And there's also the additional fact that I met my husband exactly three years to the day from first seeing it. That last fact is not objective or rational, but perhaps no history of love should be entirely rational. Where should a survey of 11,000 years of LGBT heritage end? Where does any history end? For the final object, the most contemporaneous and inclusive thing I could think of was the modern museum visitor. We are all, regardless of our sexualities, part of this ongoing history. 
And so we carefully staged this LGBT-friendly group of visitors looking at a bronze bust of the Emperor Hadrian. No heterosexuals were harmed in taking this picture, <laughs> as the caption noticed, noted. The bust was chosen to link with an epilogue about Margaret Yersenau's great historical novel, Memoirs d'Adrien, of 1951, written in French and translated into English by her life partner, Grace Frick. This fictional autobiography is a poetic meditation on life, and like James Ivory's Morris, it is also, I think, intensely queer within its classical style. At one point in the novel, the emperor mourns the drowned Antinous while the imperial entourage is in Luxor. And he visits a famous colossal statue of an ancient pharaoh, which was a tourist site because it seemed to sing at dawn. Instead of leaving yet another official inscription, he carves only his name in Greek, a single word, Adriano, as a life sum of which the innumerable elements would never be known, a mere mark left by a man wholly lost in that succession of centuries. Yersenau based this episode on the actual official inscriptions on the statue's feet and ankles, recording the visit of the, the imperial entourage in AD 130. But there are in fact none with just the emperor's name. Here it seems that the immensely scholarly Yersenar simply rewrote the evidence, making her emperor subvert the state monument with a sign of the importance of the inner world of an individual, independent of all official history. Yersenar had seen the bronze bust in the British Museum as a child and said that it had helped create and inspire her historical imagination. That is exactly what cultural heritage can and should do. Make LGBT people realize that we need not feel alone in history and that it is ours as much as anyone's. Yersenar's literary executor and Harvard Library kindly gave us permission to include an image of the manuscript of the novel. But to my eyes, the key illustration, the most iconic object in the book, is a print by Gianbattista Piranese from the 1770s. It shows the Canopus at Hadrian's Villa at Tivoli, once believed to be a chapel in honor of the deified Antinous. This print inspired Yersenar, evoking for her a queer monde antérieur of the emperor's grief. And for me, it has become an emblem of any academic attempt to imagine from within the lived experiences of another culture, another literature. It embodies visually everything I could ever hope to try to do with the philology of ancient Egyptian poetry, Le Monde Antérieur, the inner life so championed by Forster, personal desire and experience as opposed to official ideologies. I also treasure it for another reason, a print of it hung and still hangs over the mantelpiece of the house that Yersenar shared with Grace Frick in Maine. The print speaks about the past, the present, and above all, the personal. And I do think as academics, we have to speak in a personal voice, no matter how exposed that might leave us feeling, simply because there is no other way of speaking about the history of the human heart with any academic integrity. All we ended up with in this case study, is a small gift book. It is not a radical volume of queer studies or modern museology. Its aims were practical, to help increase public awareness of the diversity of desire and identity, to move some readers beyond the usual stereotypes, reminding them that LGBT can be defined not only by sexual activity, but also by domesticity, romance, and many other cultural things. Perhaps despite the title, it is a little post-gay history.
another point. Um, <clears throat> as you may have sensed, I came to believe that practical strategic thinking is as necessary as any absolute idealism, radical protest, or academic abstraction. <coughs> At the start, I decided that compromises were fine as long as the book was published, no matter how integrationist or totally gentle, so that it could be a step forward enabling future further progress. Accordingly, strategy was heavily invested in. The publication was timed to coincide with London Pride in summer 2013, with US and French editions that autumn, and even two postcards. It was launched at the wonderful Gaze the Word bookshop in Bloomsbury. The museum's website added a landing page with an updated version of the trail and an audio podcast with contributions by Maggie Hamblin, Simon Russell Beale, surprisingly giggly, and Barbara Ewing, together with an object trail to be used in the galleries. We didn't set up that photograph. It's this <laughs> Looks so gay to me. Um, British Museum Press was active with blogs, tweets, events, 3,000 flyers at that year's Pride, and an article in the BM Friends magazine. The book has sold well. It's on its third reprint and has won a few awards. The international press was very extensive, thanks to a much-repeated BBC news story, as well as reviews in national newspapers and in the gay press. Our strategic assumption, our basic assumption, was proved correct. The fact that the British Museum had endorsed the idea of LGBT history attracted international attention. One German reviewer described the book as explosive because it was published by the British Museum itself, with the official stamp of approval by the prestigious institution. Will the Met develop something like this, asked one tweet. Another, which I'd like as a quote on the cover someday, was simply fucking awesome. <laughs> it's been called groundbreaking, but it is only part of a general trend, part of a longer history, although I do hope it has encouraged other institutions a bit. After all, if one institution can write an LGBT world history from its collections, anyone can. The V&A is now very active with queer object trails and has cited this project as a precedent. Babs Guthrie of Untold London has noted that the book's popularity proved to the wider world of museum professionals that the time is ripe to recognize LGBTQ histories all year round, not just in LGBTQ History Month. Projects such as Historic England's interactive Pride of Place are another sign of this. And the plans for exhibitions partly based on the book at the British Museum and at the Ashmolean in the coming years. One day, hopefully, every museum will have at least one LGBT item openly identified as such on permanent display, so that visitors of any sexuality can feel empowered by their human heritage. The public response to this project was very warm, but it showed, unfortunately, that the past lack of visible LGBT history has encouraged people to assume that even the most inclusive cultural institutions are at best indifferent or at worst institutionally homophobic. Silent and implicit support is not enough. The experience of this project has made me feel strongly that public gestures by institutions are crucial in embodying, consolidating and legitimizing our history. Prominent institutions have a responsibility to stand up for inclusive human rights prominently. And so I'm extremely happy that my own hugely supportive college, Queens, regularly flies the rainbow flag over the high street, including today. 
Looking back, I wonder if the book was queer enough. Or should historians go into museums and queer an entire collection briefly, as Ars Homoerotica infamously did in the Polish National Museum in 2010? Perhaps, but that's rather queer normative. And I find such absolute queer normativity as worryingly prescriptive as the old heteronormativity. As you can tell, being told I wasn't gay enough has really rankled. <laughs> a simple label or a new juxtaposition in a permanent gallery can also be effective. From experience, I prioritize embedding our histories into permanent displays over any special temporary exhibition. Just because LGBT people are not special, nor are they temporary. And I think we should always remember to address diverse audiences in an inclusive manner. Often LGBT histories and scholarships seem to be aimed exclusively at our own community. But for our histories to be truly queer, they should perhaps not only be radical and distinctive, but also accessible, inclusive, multiple, and unmonolithic. But official strategies and academic politics are all a side issue, in a way. I'm told by a colleague in the museum's shop that one elderly gentleman broke down while on the phone buying a copy of the book. He explained his tears by saying that he had been imprisoned when young for being gay, and emerged from prison to find that the man he'd been caught with had killed himself. He wept because he had never expected to find a national institution including what he called his history. That is why institutions must publish such books, make gestures, and fly flags, past, present, and personal. In conclusion, I note that, Morris, that Forster's Morris was dedicated to a happier year. And while it's undoubtedly much closer than it was, it's not quite with us yet. No matter how ethical and committed to human rights an institution is, there are always going to be many different agendas and audiences demanding attention. For museums, especially in an age of austerity, there are issues of funders, patrons, and source communities who might not be as supportive as we would like. And academic culture in general can still be remarkably macho and heteronormative. In such a world, we must be practical, strategic, and be prepared for the occasional compromise, even with the most enlightened straight allies. But still, some compromises are really irritating. As you've seen, the Warren Cup is absolutely covered with naked men, but for a while this, this, was the only official British Museum postcard of it. You have to try very hard to take a photograph without naked men on it of the Warren Cup. It may be the most cowardly postcard in the world. Love, desire, and gender in all their diversity are never minority concerns. This goes beyond identity politics. It is simply a matter of cultural equality. All too often, we've been told that we are hidden from history and marginal, but taking a longer view, this isn't necessarily so, as Yosinar once remarked while sitting under that Piranese print. We do not need to be scared of the centre. The centre is everywhere, and we are as much the centre as anyone. Sexual diversity has always been part of human existence. As such, our diverse histories must not be marginal or marginalised. And this is a personal thing. Even in research on something as apparently remote as Egyptian poetry and fragmentary papyri, even in a silly little gift book like this one, 
We have an immense responsibility to get this right in whatever way each of us can. Across the world, gay men are being thrown from buildings and stoned to death. Teenagers are being taunted and bullied to suicide. Lives are at stake if we do not persuade our world to embrace a more inclusive vision by what we do, by who we are. And behind us stand the dead, the multitudinous dead, who often had fewer opportunities than us to choose how they loved, still less to speak out. As Forster remarked in another coming out novel, we fight for more than love or pleasure. There's truth. Truth counts. Truth does count. Thank you.